0: Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABODA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABODA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi everybody, welcome to Trial Alchemy and this is Monty McIntyre your host and I'm delighted today to have with me as my guest Cynthia Chihak, she goes by Cindy. So I'll be calling her that today. And Cindy, thanks so much for being a guest today. Now, let me tell you everybody about Cindy. She's an amazing trial lawyer. I think of her as talented, tough, and tenacious. She is a trial lawyer who fights for her clients. She's very creative very strategic and over the course of her career, she continues to get amazing results for her clients. And so she's a great trial lawyer to have in your side. If you need somebody to fight for you. Now, Cindy started practicing in 1977. She's been an active trial lawyer ever since then. She's been very involved with different bars. Uh, She's a fellow of the International Society of Barristers an advocate of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. She's been a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates for many years, and she was the president of our San Diego chapter in 2008. She's also been active in things like the San Diego Trial Lawyers, now known as the Consumer Attorneys of San Diego, and she was the president of the SDTLA in 1992 and 1993. And Cindy has been winning trial awards throughout her career. I mean, she has been inducted into the Consumer Attorneys of San Diego Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame Uh, that was in 2019. She's been a trial lawyer of the year with uh, CASD. She's won seven outstanding trial lawyer awards over the years in the nineties, two thousands and two thousand teens. And she was the winner of the Daniel T Broderick, III award in 2007. Now for San Diego lawyers, I think most of us consider that the highest honor you could receive as a trial lawyer in San Diego, because it commemorates somebody who was a great plaintiff's trial lawyer, but also somebody who was smart as could be tenacious, great trial lawyer, but also very civil professional and courteous and his word was his bond and Cindy's exactly the same way. So she epitomizes that. So without any further ado, Cindy, thanks so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate it. And let's start off with this. Um, why don't you tell our listeners about one of your most satisfying trial victories. You've had a lot of victories. You've had a lot of victories in medical malpractice, but other personal injury areas. What's something that comes to mind that you've had?
1: Well, it's interesting, Moni. I mean, I listen to you talk and I feel like I'm in that movie where it's exhausting listening to you um, about what's gone on. But I've had a couple of cases, probably about four or five, that have resulted in being published and therefore have made law in California. We had a medical malpractice case, Uriel versus the Regents. And if you look at your jury instructions on probable cause in a medical negligence case, it will cite our case as the law on what a plaintiff has to or has not have to prove, okay? Um, That really wasn't that long ago. That was probably four or five years ago. In addition to that, what is important are the things that last In a Kaiser case that I handled quite a while ago, we actually had them change their critical value. So all across the state, the critical value for sodium was changed so that more people would be treated, wouldn't have strokes, things like that. Those are significant verdicts that go beyond the one person I helped you rule. Um, some of the more fun cases though, are really like we uh, tried a couple years ago, a trip and fall of a 98 year old lady who broke her hip um, over a dog leash. She said the owner had the dog leash stretched out, but the owner paid. The problem is we tried it against her assisted living facility on the idea they should not have had the dog in the common area. It, it was a great trial. It was in front of Tim Taylor and my client was on the witness stand when she looked at him and said, you really are a strange man. And anybody who knows Judge Taylor, it would, have, it would be hard pressed not to laugh at that, including <laughs> Judge Taylor. So she was a great lady. I mean, her big deal was she couldn't drive anymore. Jury was very impressed with her. They gave her $998,000. Wow.
0: Year. Yeah. Great result.
1: So it was, and it was fun to help her and to get to try something that maybe wasn't quite as medically oriented for a change.
0: Yeah. Variety is fun, isn't it? It is. So Cindy, I know one of the things you do is you work hard and you prepare hard. And as we've talked about before we got on this interview, that uh, there's a lot of work to get prepared for a trial. So do you? how do you prepare when you're going to trial? Do you have any process that you've developed over the years that you follow? Uh, might be something interesting for our listeners to hear about.
1: I think it depends on the type case because being a good plaintiff's lawyer doesn't necessarily require pulling out all the stops i mean ultimately you have to think about what are you doing for your client and ordering 20,000 pages of records when the issue is was the leg broken or not right. is a waste of their money okay so it's kind of a case by case basis Initially, if we're talking about a medical malpractice case, I thoroughly believe that you win or lose that in the defendant's depositions. Those have to be taken very early in the case. And the defendant's rendition of the facts and theory of why the plaintiff suffered the injury or the patient did has to be just nailed down in stone. because otherwise what will happen is it will change as the case progresses to meet the evidence that comes in and to meet what the experts conceive could have happened. Now, if we get to the point where you know you're sincerely going to try the case, it's important to have an analysis done. This is probably nine months before the case is set for trial of who the percipient witnesses are that you need before your expert is sufficiently aware of the facts that they can come in with a credible opinion based upon the evidence. So we do that. Um, once those witnesses have been deposed. We do a summary, not a complete summary, but like opinions and significant facts so that when I talk to the experts that I've retained, I can basically regurgitate those. I also have complete indexes of any medical records, and I know it's a lot of work, and the associates here absolutely hate it. And they'll say, 3,000 pages. And I'll go, it doesn't matter, because if you do it now, you don't have to do it later. And it will get more advanced, just case goes on. Those indexes are great. And then you go critical. Absolutely critical. Those and understanding what the theories are of the Fence and how you can um respond to those in a credible way okay so now you've got your depositions taken then you're going to summarize your depositions which is really boring so you do these devil summaries they're boring i i'm just adamant that they have to be pretty close if you're going to write it down to verbatim what the witness says
0: absolutely
1: You know, and I know you experienced that, too. If someone says witness didn't have an opinion, that's different than witness says there is no way to form an opinion. They're totally different. I want to know that the words that are in that depot summary are exact words if they're important, so that I can get the spin of how they can go either way in trial. Once we get there, then you're in a a position of every time you read something and you think it's potential motion, making a note and we keep a log that'll say potential motions and lemony. We might start off with 30, but really we're going to file five. It's just issues that you think may eventually emerge during the course of your depositions, your expert discovery. And either they do or they don't. But at least you're prepared to do it. So once you have all that, once you're kind of on your motions, you're gonna have a trial note with all your exhibits. And you're gonna go through them, and of your 245 exhibits, there's gonna be 20 that you're going to use over and over. And those you're going to have to memorize. You're going to have All to-
0: Only going to be a few critical exhibits. Yep.
1: Absolutely. And you have
0: to know them forwards and backwards.
1: You do. You have to know that even though page one says this, page two says that. And you have to know it better than your witness. So basically, that's how I prepare for trial. And then we do a witness outline, decide how they're going to come in, a direct of our witness. and hopefully talk to them and try to prepare them for their cross
0: well that's great and and you're doing this from the beginning of the case and i i know you and i'm sure that what you do in every case is you prepare every case for trial i do i'm not
1: sure that's a great use of your time always but i do at least when it comes to the idea of who the defendants are and what evidence I'm going to need. Right. That's from day one. Depo summaries are later. But from day one is who are the defendants and what do they have to say?
0: Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about taking those doctors in medical cases or critical precipiate witness depots early, that's so important because you want to get that testimony nailed down. You want to get them in concrete so they can't change your story later you've made them commit and that's really important on the plaintiff side especially you agree
1: oh I absolutely agree um no answer is not an answer I tell them look that I don't remember means something different in their deposition than it would if they were just talking to me, I don't remember means you have no memory. So if I asked you, did you have bacon and eggs two weeks ago? And you said, I don't remember. I could look at you and say you had three eggs, four slices of bacon. And you couldn't tell me I was wrong. So don't tell me I don't remember. If you've got any reason to dispute what right. I tell you facts are.
0: Well, let me let me ask you a little related question that comes to mind. When you're taking these depositions, do you tend to take depositions of witnesses you think may be important on uh, and videotape them so you can make depot clips, video clips uh, and when you're if you're doing a videotape deposition do you try to make it so that you always get a clear question and answer without them going off into other areas so you've got a nice clip you can make later
1: Well the first part is I any major witness and and that pretty much is everyone it's not an economist it's not a life care planner unless I have some particular reason but any major witness I will videotape because witnesses are never as prepared for their deposition as they are for the trial. So I I do videotape it and I tape it with the idea that I'm gonna be able to have clips. And I do ask the same question over till I believe I've gotten an answer. But you know, as well as I do, there are witnesses you are never going to get an answer. <laughs> True. Sure. Uh, it is I mean you can say is it raining outside and they'll question you on where do you mean is it raining it might be raining in Texas right now but as far as I look outside <laughs> I, you know and it's like look don't make it so hard is it raining? period
0: yeah well and I think one of the important things video clips of depots can be so powerful in front of the jury But what you're doing is important. I've done that in my depots, too. you got to make sure you get a clear question and answer, because you don't want a question where they go off subject, and you don't want to have to show that to the jury. You want your question answered, and you want a clear question and answer, right?
1: Right. And you'll have three hours of videotape and maybe two minutes that you want to show to the jury. And the other thing I would point out is once you get your answer you want, leave it alone.
0: Yep. Move on. Move on. Yeah. But you got to be tenacious to get that clip. And then then you can move on. Well, that's great. Uh, Let me ask you about this. You've tried a lot of med mal cases, but you've tried other things. What are some of the best and most successful themes that you've used in your trials That you have found to be very powerful.
1: I think you have to have a theme that's keeping the facts, but almost sounds like a, I don't know, a clip from a commercial. Mm -hmm. All right? Like, where's the meat? or something? We had a case where a... 30-year-old man was having dinner at, I guess, some steak restaurant next to the sports arena. And he was walking over to the sports arena. An old marquee from a deserted movie theater fell. But it was going to fall on an eight-year-old girl. And he covered, he didn't know her. He covered her body with his and he ended up a paraplegic.
0: Oh, my goodness
1: so that the theme of it was on you know this date june 1st 2013 dan Dahl became two things he became a paraplegic and he became a hero hmm. and that said the whole case
0: that yeah that's great great example and you're right case specific
1: very case specific
0: now you've also been up against some very tough defense lawyers and in your various trials that you've had what kind of themes have you seen or heard from the defense that you thought were pretty pretty effective or pretty good
1: i think that as opposed to being a plaintiff's lawyer there's a lot of themes in the defense that carry through meaning it doesn't matter if they're carrying trying this case or there, trying that case or there. I mean, one of my, my best friends is Clark Hudson. I know you know him too, but I have a running joke with him that if he puts his doctor on the stand once more and I hear, I had a calling to be a urologist. I had a calling to be a gastroenterologist. I had a calling that I'm going to vomit, you know, because it's <laughs> the it's theme and, and I don't think, Clark and you could ask him, has tried a case in 20 years that this doctor didn't have a calling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Mike Neal used to always say, and it didn't matter if they were young or old, in closing argument, he would say, don't put this yoke around my doctor's you know neck that's been practicing his whole life or my young don't put this yoke around my young doctor's neck and it didn't matter how old they were he fit it so you can have a theme like that and carry it through easier on the defense side right it, it generates better
0: yeah i think that's that's very true so now in when we get to the trial Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of aspects of trying cases but when you think about your experience what part of a jury trial do you think is the most important part and why do you feel that way
1: i think cross-examination is one of your most important parts i won't say vamos but pretty close um because the evidence is coming from the other side i think the jury in fact i know the jury expects your witnesses to testify well for you they expect the person you call to say you know the light was green will say the light was green but if you can get the defense witness to say the light was green it's much more impressive so I think the cross examination is extremely important.
0: That's true. L- let me ask you about your cross. In terms of cross examination, I kind of think of it in terms of the classic cross examination. I kind of think of the closed questions, trying to get yes or no's. I mean, a great example in San Diego of a master that was Jerry McMahon during his career, and and all that, but there's a kind of a wilder crazier cross-examination approach epitomized by people like Jerry Spence and Milt Silverman in San Diego in his days that's I kind of think of as an open cross where you're not trying to control the witness so much have you used just one method have you used both approaches depending upon the witness or the case what what's your approach
1: i think you use both approaches in all witnesses there are certain things you just want yes or no's to and you know the answer mm-hmm. this is your note you wrote it on this stage you were driving this car weren't you
0: you owned
1: it did this person work for you did you tell them to do a b c d and E? but i would say that's the m- minority of my cross Mine other is probably more open But the questions are phrased so that it doesn't matter what the answer is. If someone tells me, yes, I did that, then the follow-up questions are, you didn't have the patient's consent to do it, did you? You didn't tell somebody. If they say, no, I didn't do it, then the question is, well, then why is it on the consent form? (laughs) so it doesn't matter what the the deal is to lead the witness with your yes or no's to a point where you know they don't initially understand where you're coming from and then it's too late because it doesn't matter what the answer is there's no right
0: answer right there's that's that's so important in fact let's i think that's a great point that you bring up when lawyers are trained in law school and even after law school they're so often told well don't ask a question if you don't know the answer to it and you you haven't been able to ask it before but as you're pointing out and i found this true in my experience trying cases there are times when you can get a witness to a point and if you prepared about it and thought about it and been strategic you know there's no good answer they can give you so you don't isn't that your experience you'll ask them the question you maybe not know the answer but you know you've got them
1: you've got that i mean there's uh, there's no getting around it you know you ask some witness well you work for so and so do you always report your income i mean you don't lie to your boss do you <laughs> um you're honest about when you clock in i mean what are they going to say no i'm not honest I mean, yeah, I am, I am, I am. And then you say, well, let me show you this document. How do you explain that you wrote down you worked, You know, 28 hours that day.
2: <laughs>
1: and it's like, well, um, this is a mistake. You know, and then you go, okay, well, what about this one? Well, what about this time sheet? <laughs> and pretty soon, you know, there, there's just no answer.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really good. And I think it's good for people to know that you, you, you've got to use that tool and be able to, but you also have to know your case caseful enough and you've, you've really know all the evidence so well that you know, when you get to those points, right?
1: Right. Well, if you don't know your case, you may as well give it up.
0: Yeah. Now, so and you've tried a lot of cases over the years with great success. And are there, if you were going to say, look, you know, if you would say, hey, here's the top lesson I've learned about things that are important in trying jury trials, or my top two lessons, or top three, what, what things have you learned over the years that you think are really critical, make a big difference?
1: Your jury is the most, one of the most important things, and how you're relating to them, okay? You don't want to offend them. I'm not saying you, you want, I mean, you'd love them to love you. But the goal is more not to offend anybody on that jury. And that includes the witnesses when and how you're crossing them. I mean, you've got some nice lady on this witness stand. You don't want the jury to perceive that you're picking on them just because you went to law school. Right so you've got to keep your credibility like that your jury panel honestly and in all these trials and i probably had seventy-five hundred trials i just don't know i mean you know you get this jury panel and it's you think it's good you don't know if it's good and you don't know till the jury comes in truthfully it's very difficult to tell on that. one of the things i think that recently within the last oh probably five or six ten years i've come to the conclusion on is that your judge makes a phenomenal difference in your trial really oh i think so i used to think uh, if i'm gonna you know i can try this case in front of anyone i'm not so sure that's true i think that if you have a judge where the courtroom has a nice demeanor it's friendly and you have a judge who's really just ruling you know like straight on the facts versus tired of being there or you know takes positions that are very hard for you to get around um it makes a huge impact in your case yeah if if the judge doesn't like ear case the jury feels that mm. so you know i think it's way more important to- well yeah
0: the ju- the ju- jury is so important as is the judge so in terms of trying to pick a jury i mean some trial lawyers are looking for certain occupations or certain other things Are you doing anything like that and trying to pick your jury on your cases? Are you trying to get a feel person to person? What are you trying to do and picking who you think would be the best jury for your client?
1: Well, we all have certain rules we try to follow. Um, I don't like engineers on my jury. I honestly don't. (laughs) they want to you know they'll analyze things and and sometimes they're just wrong the way they're figuring it they're they're figuring well you know if this question was a 51 49 now the next question has to be whatever as opposed to going back to zero yeah or they'll they'll take the data and they'll reanalyze it oh in my medical malpractice cases i'm not putting a doctor on the jury I'm not because it's but for the grace of God, there goes on, you know, and you know that it's just if you don't believe that, you know, as a stereotype, then, you know, you better have a perfect doctor on that jury because it isn't going to happen. They are just going to say, well, medicine is not an exact science and there's going to be a benefit of the doubt there, I think. I'd kind of do it other than the, maybe those two rules, I do do it on a person to person. Okay. Basis.
0: Well, and I think it's important, um, to not offend the jury if you're talking about when you're cross-examining witnesses, like if you have a real likable defendant, you're not going to probably go after them in similar ways that you might with somebody who's not so likable. Would that be true?
1: Oh, absolutely i tried a case once with um a, it was a man whose house burned down and my expert was a fireman he was this great looking driver of a fire truck and he was talking about combustion and this and this and it's probably he's probably 35 and met all these young women on the jury and the defense attorney looked at him and she said well you're nothing but a glorified truck driver
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And I thought, really? You know, and one of the women even stood up in the in the trial and said, you just don't get it Yeah, and to the defense attorney. And I'm like, why would you ever say that? You have and literally had a truck driver on our jury. So it was yeah. a perfect example of what not to do.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this. Another thing about. Uh, not offending the jury. Uh, And this came up in a recent interview of um, one of the other people I interviewed when I talked to Alan Brubaker. Alan uh, gave an example of a case where he was defending a case and the plaintiff's attorney in a mini opening statement talked about the number that uh, he was going to ask the jury for. And there were apparently reactions from Several of the jurors like they were reacting negatively, and then later the uh, in the opening statement, the the plant lawyer actually gave a lower number. And so when you're when you've got serious injury cases, which is what you've got, and you're thinking about okay, I think this number is a fair number you want to ask the jury, and it's large. How do you try to factor in this issue of will the number be something that the jury might? react negatively
1: to? Well, your numbers got to reflect your disability. So if you've got somebody who has a limp and nothing else, and you're going to ask that jury for $10 million or a hundred, you know, 15 million, you better have some basis for that, whether it's in your opening or not. Like, you know, Mr. McIntyre right. has prevented from going you know to work his profession that he did that he made x per year on and so we are not going to ask you we're not inflating what's what we're asking you for is what he lost and you can do it like that in med males in the past when i've had huge economic losses right especially if i don't have a real likable plan okay i have somebody who's you no, know, maybe not. Thought the best reputation. Somebody who was on welfare, something like that. What I'll do, but I have a huge life care plan. Okay, I'll waive general damages, and I'll tell the jury that I'll say, Mister, Mister, Mister Smith, you know, is in a or he's in a coma. He's in a wheelchair. He's never going to walk. He's never going to talk. He's never going to eat. And I could ask you for twenty million dollars for what his life is not going to be, but I'm not. He's told me, forget it, wave all those. All he wants at the close of this trial is enough money that he can pay his doctors. That's all he wants. Someone to pay his doctors, someone to clean his house and someone to change his diapers. That's all he's asking. And that's what and I'll tell him. That's a huge amount. Of money. Yeah,
0: that's a that's a great approach. And uh, I'm sure that worked pretty darn well in that case. Right.
1: It worked uh, in some cases better than others. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of. Uh, in terms of. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is earlier is motions in limine, and, you know, you might file only a few. And, uh, in my experience, it seems like you get a lot of motions from the other side on the defense side. And it seems like a lot of them they're trying to ask the judge before the trial even starts to pre-decide all kinds of stuff. I mean, what are the most effective motions in limine, whether it's for the plan for defense that you've seen?
1: I think you need a, a, a motion that is specific to this. you really do because what what I what annoys me with motions and lemony, it's all the rulings like, well, I'll defer. I'll defer. I'll right. defer. Well, I don't need a motion and lemony if you're gonna defer. The whole purpose on the motion is <laughs> I didn't want to object and I don't terribly want a sidebar, but I want even less to be arguing in front of my jury. Why, right. why what Mr. M- McIntyre wants to get in is inadmissible because then I'm just getting it in. You know, so there's, my motions are very specific. They're like, Dr. So-and-so said he agrees this was the cause. Therefore, pursuant to Kenimer, he cannot now say something else. I'm not going to do, I mean, I, I hate the generic, can motion because one i think it's a misreading case the law that is not what that case said that is it, it's become so convoluted at this point that unless you specifically you can't ask what color was the person's sweater you have to have said is the sweater pink or your witness can't give the opinion the sweater wasn't pink and that's not what that case meant that's not what the law Is it's like the Sanchez stuff that's coming out now is ludicrous. So I will make specific motions. This is what X testified to this doctor or this expert, this radiologist, this engineer. You know, they gave opinions on the reconstruction of the accident. They cannot now come in and talk to me about road design. And it doesn't matter whether road design is an issue or not. Their opinion was limited to accident
2: reconstruction
0: right and also when you took that experts depot you made sure you got them to answer those questions have have you given me all your opinions and everything that's a basis for the opinion and you got the answer yes mm-hmm. and they didn't give this information right
1: they didn't they didn't i just saw a and it wasn't mine it was um, a different Plaintiff's lawyers, but a motion in lemony on an IME report that said, and it quotes the code sections and says, look, an IME report is supposed to contain all the doctor's opinions and conclusions that they formed during the course of their evaluation. And then it brings in all the Kenimer and all the rulings and says this independent medical examiner now should be limited. To their trial testimony to what they said in their report and it's an interesting motion because there's a lot of reasons that ought to be true unless the witness in deposition says i've changed my mind mm-hmm. and this is why so
0: well now what about if you have um if there's an issue that you've spotted, might be an evidence issue or some other issue, and you don't know whether your opponent's mm-hmm. going to spot it, mm-hmm. you don't want to raise that in emotional levity. How do you handle those?
1: Um, I have pocket briefs. Like, I'll say I want peas and A's so that if someone is going there, on cross or on direct and I think they're going there. I can say to the court you know I want a sidebar and I want a sidebar now. I, You need to anticipate how to defend the case but you don't need to tell the other side how you think they should defend the case and that's exactly what you're saying. I will read that constantly in my briefs that the people give me, my associates, you know, well, the defense is going to argue A, B, C. And I'm like, how do you know that the defense is going to argue that? It's nice you have a rebuttal. Right. Don't it. It's not a law school question where the approach is on the other hand. You know, they will say, but my conclusion is so we'll all say brief it for me. I want to get in the fact that my client told four people on Facebook that so-and-so ran the red light, okay? Give me two pages or give me the code sections to prove I can get it in. Yeah you know, or that it's negligence per se, because it's a statute that's violated.
0: And in, in my experience, Cindy, and I, it sounds like it's yours too, that if you've got maybe a one or two page brief, you've anticipated it, you've got it ready and the issue comes up in trial and you say to the judge, here's my brief, take a look at it. That seems to have more impact than if you said the same thing verbally because you've thought about it ahead and you've prepared ahead. Have you had that experience?
1: I think so. Um, I think it's a little judge-specific, meaning if they're going yeah. to willing read it.
0: Yeah. The
1: thing is, if you hand it to them, it's in your file anyway, right. so it's preserved for an appeal. It makes it easier for the judicial officer to say, well, wait a minute, she's citing me to this case or this code section. I can open the book and look at it, okay? Right. I now know. I mean, it's one thing to look at the judge and say, I don't think that's hearsay. It's something else to say. It's an exception to hearsay pursuant to evidence code 1107. Right. So one is is much more persuasive than the other. Uh, it, it's just the way you need to do it, and truthfully, it's not that hard. And it's a great learning process for the lawyer, because then the lawyer knows.
0: Yeah, and, and if it's something where you're anticipating an issue, if the other side never spots the issue or they don't try to do it, fine, you're covered. But you haven't... Why would you want to pre-tell them about an issue in emotional limiting, and maybe they didn't even know it was coming?
1: absolutely I, I mean there are there are certain times you have to because you know they're gonna do it and it would be so devastating if somebody didn't get it out but that's the kind of motion where you know you're gonna win
2: yeah
1: so you know you say i don't want anything and try i want no reference to the fact that my expert was i don't know disbarred for this you know or put on probation with the medical board for six months in 2002 so you make the motion you make sure that the defense on cross doesn't say well you know didn't you wasn't your license suspended during this time frame and even if they didn't know about it they now know about it but at least you've covered it it's when you're in those real dicey more theory than fact that you don't want to make the motion unless you have to.
0: Right, right. No, that makes sense. So when you've you've got your jury picked, you're going to start your trial and give your opening statement. What's your approach with opening statement? Uh, What's your strategy when you're starting the case and telling the jury your story?
1: I'm not so sure it's a great strategy, but my strategy is it's as close to closing argument as I can get. <laughs> it's going to be just as dramatic as I can push the envelope for. You know, if I get objections, I'll back off. If the judge says something, I certainly will back off. But there's nothing more boring than to listen to somebody for thirty minutes say the evidence will show. Right. The evidence will show. The evidence will show.
0: Yeah, that is very dull very dull now in your opening statement do you use things like if the judge has approved do you use things like any demonstrative evidence do you show them um you know maybe a video clip of some testimony that may be important or do you show them photographs that may be uh, important or anything like that or portions of a document anything like that
1: all of the above a jury is now expect some sort of technology yeah they don't you know they don't want to just listen to you anymore I think that's sad because I think there's too much of it right but, I mean we'll show before and after pictures if we have like hospital care treatment we'll show those if I've got a couple of video clips and that becomes something that you usually have to argue about right. But, a defendant's clip or a plaintiff's clip of testimony, but not, not 20 minutes, you know, two minutes.
2: You right, know? Short.
1: Yeah, did you know you were doing this? Yes, I did, and I'd do it again. You know, or what did you do? Nothing. That's what you want. Yeah, and then you want to spin off of that.
0: Okay, and in terms of, um, you know, you're going to be calling different percipient witnesses and expert witnesses in a trial. You may talk about some of those things in an opening statement. Do you ever show photographs of some of these experts are going to come testify or anything like that?
1: You know, I don't. I know some people do, and they'll show a photograph of the photograph with a little bio, you know, Dean of or. Yeah. I don't do that. I don't think you have enough time to do Yeah, that.
0: the time is, you don't have that much time. Right. When, when you give an opening statement, how long, how short or long do you try to make it?
1: Depends on the length of the trial. If you've got a four day trial, you're gonna give a 15 minute opening. Yeah. Got a four week trial, you might give an hour opening. So it's it's gonna vary. But if all you can say about your expert is here, look at his CV. You know, and, and have somebody have to pull that up. I think lawyers become so enthralled with their PowerPoint presentations that they're more concerned clicking the button yeah, than relating to the jury. It's like they used to tell you, you know, 15, 20 years ago, go up and do your opening. Do your argument. If you want to write it out before, great. But then put it down and talk to the jury. Now what's, what you see is people that are so tied to their PowerPoint. It's absolutely no different than reading from a closing argument that they've transcribed or an opening statement or a right. list of questions. It's their PowerPoint and they are going there no matter what.
0: And that can that can disconnect you from the jury easily.
1: Oh, it does. Plus, a lot of times in opening it, the jury doesn't understand the significance of what you're putting up there. If you put too much up there, they they don't understand the significance. Now, I'm really big on, probably partially because of the kind of cases I try, like giving the jury an index. So they can say, you know, what is is a neuroblastoma? Yeah. And it'll define it. What does it mean if someone's on a blood thinner? What's an INR? I mean, you know, so that you don't, you're still going to explain it through one or two witnesses, but the jury has available to them the definition.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: Yeah. Means.
0: Now, it, when, when you're giving your opening statements, and you probably do this also in your final arguments, um, I know you are connecting with your jury. And so are you doing it? where you just have an outline or you have some notes or are you just doing it you've thought about it and prepared you are just doing it without anything you're referring to
1: i have an outline and i have the key exhibits copies of those yeah so i'll know and from the outline i'm not really looking at it but if i have a break or i can look down i can say oh I forgot to talk about yeah witness number so and so. So my outline might consist of these are the plaintiffs or these are the experts that testified for plaintiff. These are the experts that testified for the defendant. These yeah. are the recipient witness with a little star by who I thought was the star. You know, but sometimes when you're giving a closing argument after a couple of weeks, you think you're going to talk about you know, the police investigator that said the light didn't work. And then you're all done talking about how they should have put up this beacon and they didn't put up this beacon and they never trimmed the trees. And you're going to start damages. And all of a sudden you go, oh, I forgot to talk about that police officer that testified.
2: That's right.
1: It that didn't work. So the purpose of my outline or my notes is to remind me that this field, this field and this field has to be covered.
0: Yeah, I've used outlines in my trials for the same reason. I think they're helpful because you're not tied to them and you don't get lost in the document, but it helps remind you, oh, I got to cover this. Right. So that's that's great. Now, uh, in terms of one of the things you mentioned earlier is, you know, sometimes you've got judges who are being difficult. Um, How do you deal with difficult judges when? You think they're not really making rulings that make sense or they're doing things that are making things harder for your case?
1: Well, I think the first rule is make sure you're right. And they're not. Now, all that said, I deal with them differently now than I used to when I was first starting to try cases. I figured if they ruled like that, they were correct and I didn't understand it. I probably got more obstinate, meaning, you know, this is my case. I'm always extremely prepared on issues of the law. So I can go in and I can say, look, here's my brief. Here's my authority. There's no contrary authority, and I don't care how loud the other side is yelling or how loud I'm yelling at you, you know. Right it's the law. Now, if they're not gonna rule for you for whatever reason, you know, and, and I'm making the assumption here we're not in a situation where it's a close call. You know, you're in a situation where you're saying you just can't do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, then I think you you really either I think you have to stand up for your client. And if nothing else, I'll, I'll look up the judge. And I've done it a few times where I'll say, I want this in the file. i go, Ms. You know, Miss Cheehawk, I've ruled. And I go, I understand you have. And now I'm making my record, Your Honor, because your ruling's incorrect.
0: And yeah. you so wanna make sure you get that record.
1: You do. And you also wanna tell the judge with I think no uncertainty. You have to be right, and it has to be the right. I'm not going to tell him that if he overruled my relevancy objection. Right. Okay. But if somebody is letting a witness testify that's not a declared expert on an expert field and isn't a percipient witness, then I'm going to say something. If somebody's going to ignore a civil, you know, a code section... And say it's negligence per se, because I don't think that so-and-so should be subject to that. It's like, well, I don't really care what you think, Your Honor. That's (laughs) the law. Period. You know, it, it doesn't make it nice. I had a judge describe me as a really good trial lawyer, really fun to have me try a case in front of them, and someone who made their life extremely difficult during the trial. (laughs)
0: the trial judge said that
1: (laughs) and i think that's true that's good
0: you made them work
1: well i think that's the thing because and i'm sure you've had that situation too where someone will say over can't you work it out can't you and defense counsel work it out can't you read even what about if we read from the deposition versus getting the witness here you know do you really (laughs) want me to rule on unavailability and a lot of times I'll say yes
2: rule
0: yeah rule well let me ask you about this uh as a plaintiff's lawyer you have one of the arrows in your quiver is you could call that defense doctor Mm -hmm. as your first witness under seven seven six or you know whatever uh, the other party do you do that have you found that to be effective and do you do it the same frequency as earlier in your career or is your frequency of using that tool different now
1: it's way different i almost never do it i I'm, i never call them as my first witness if i'm going to call them i'm going to call them before my experts on their particular field but i don't do it because one they're, my doctors are on the other side are usually really prepared by the time they get to trial, okay? Right. Um, unless there's something that's just magical that I've got that I don't think the other side has, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to go my way. They're not going to just do what Miss Cheahawk tells them to do or answer in her way. No. <laughs> I've got, even though it's a 776 on a cross... I've already had the opportunity to see what good they have done for their case, and I can attack that versus just attacking everything. And probably, I don't know if you remember Doug Reynolds. Um yeah. right? Well, yeah. he was an amazing defense trial lawyer. I think he probably had a hundred trials when I had my second trial against Doug. And you know, he said one time to me, and we're just talking is that I could never understand why the plaintiff lawyer wants to make my witness their very first witness. You know, it gives me an opportunity I wouldn't have otherwise to let the jury meet this nice person to, you know, have them talk about their qualifications and why they were, you know, so loving and caring and blah, blah, blah. And then I get to recall them.
0: Right. Right. I mean, that's certainly the big downside if somebody does call a seven seven six because you just started your case as a plaintiff and they're telling their story. Last thing you want.
1: Exactly. And you want to make sure, I mean, as long as the defense is going to recall them in the case in chief, that gives you another shot at it. But if they don't, you've got an issue.
0: Yeah. Okay, so now we're, we're trying the case. You've we've talked about cross uh, things like that, which is very important. Um, now, in medical malpractice cases, until these fairly recent amendments have now changed, or over the next ten years is going to change what you might get for non-economic damages, and it'll go up. It's always been terribly limited, uh, but you've also had other cases without the micro cap. So when you've had cases where you've you think there's significant non-economic damages. Uh, And of course, in a medical case, as you've done in your experience, you've also proven battery where there is no microcap. So when you're talking about big non-economic damages, what kind of analogies or things have you used to try to educate the jury and help them understand how they might value that number?
1: Well, you can talk about somebody, like you can talk about, like my trip and fall that I was talking about, all right? I was like, look, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, she has three more years, three more years, and they were going to be her last three years and and her best three years on a declining basis. Mm. If you take that away from her, you've taken everything. If you take three years away from a 16-year-old, they've got another 70. It's still three years, but it's the difference between destroying one of three dresses and destroying one of 100. You know, so you can use an analogy like that to explain that, you know, this is more significant. Why is this more significant in your person's life? than it might be in my life why is it more important like it we could use you you know you you do your podcast you have your music you do your trial work so maybe your voice and your ability to you know speak is way more important to you carries a higher dollar value than somebody who sits at a desk and drafts engineering cards you know it's a different skill if you're an artist and suddenly you can't um draw because just you've got a slight palsy in your hand or something it's much more significant than if it happened to me i had a doctor i represented who was a retinal surgeon and just tiny stroke tiny but what it gave her was just micro spasms very unpredictably you know maybe Mm -hmm. one a day maybe two worker hands would just jump just like that that's it that was the residual but it stopped her entire career
2: wow yeah
1: because you can't do micro optical surgery on someone's retina if your hand might jump right you know, so that was so significant to her and truthfully, I probably wouldn't even notice it.
0: Okay. Well, th- those are great examples. And sometimes trial lawyers, plaintiffs' trial lawyers will try to use analogies of, uh, you know, amounts of dollars per day or this and that, or they may try to use analogies of, you know, how valuable, uh, uh a, uh, fighter jet, maybe and blah 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 and what they do to try to save them and protect the lives of the pilots have you used any things like that to try to say you know here's some ways you can think about trying to put dollars on what my client has lost or suffered
1: yeah i was never big on those analogies i never really have used them a lot i would more use the things where you take the general damage jury instruction and you take each item of it out separately Mm. so you don't just say this is their pain and separate you say this is their pain they went through it from this year to this year it started off at a 10. after three years we're now down to a five but for the rest of their lives they're going to have three and that's 20 more years right this is their anxiety. They've been to a psychiatrist. You know They still are in treatment. They have to take anti-anxiety meds. This is going to go on. And so you break them down one by one. And then if you have an economic loss, like a life care plan, a loss of earnings, and you can right. see the economic loss here is $10 million. It's insignificant compared to each of these items so it's got to be worth a minimum of the same i mean one is just bills; the other is your life
0: right okay that's great in terms of um your final argument cindy when you're making your final argument and your final final or your rebuttal argument what are your strategies at those points in addressing the jury? And um, sounds like your opening statement, you're using as much emotion and argument as you can anyway. So so you may have given them a preview in the opening statement. So what's your strategy on the final arguments?
1: I think on the final argument, you know, you go first, you go through your case, you talk right. about you do your typical thank you so much for your time um i 90 percent of the lawyers i know that i would consider good trial lawyers have some sort of a prepared to sentence things that say this is my take on the evidence if your notes or you remember something differently i'm not trying to mislead you go with your notes go with your recollection this is how i saw the evidence this is what i believe it showed so you don't want somebody thinking she's lying to me right i know that doctor didn't say that she's intentionally lying to me um and then you're gonna go in you're gonna go into your facts you're gonna go into your uh, witnesses statements how you proved Your case, a lot of it is following the jury instruction to a certain extent. You know, this is why so-and-so was their agent. What is an agent? An agent is this. And then you bring your facts in, okay? Um, The last thing you approach is the damages. Right. And then you sit down. Now, the rebuttal is, is totally different, though. It's absolutely, totally different. Usually, I have a rebuttal written before I start the trial. And it's just a short one or two paragraphs like, well, now we've been here for four weeks to hear nothing on a case that should have resolved years ago. You know, you have your rebuttal, that part of it written before. And then you're going to listen to four or five things that the defense did or did not do. Maybe not even that many. And then you need a snappy comeback for those
2: right
1: you know and and I mean and truthfully I do mean kind of a snappy comeback like I've had defense lawyers not talk about damages at all like this is so clear and I'll say did you notice he didn't even talk to you about damages and he didn't because he knows I'm low he knows that this lawsuit and the injuries it caused vastly exceed the amount of money were asking for now obviously in reality that's not the case at all but there's nothing i said that wasn't true they didn't talk about it so you can make the assumption that they didn't think the amount you know was ridiculous and honestly i don't ask i'm very conservative on the amount i asked for are you yeah i am i i I'm higher than the defense 98% of the time. Right. And I also, um, I don't come in on a t- with $10 million on a case that I know if the jury gave me every penny, I could conceivably prove is going to be three. Yeah. Because I don't know how you can add a mediation, you know, in settlement negotiations. I see no value to starting at 10 and ending up at one. It, it, it just, it's like, what's the basis for your argument? You've got to have a basis for it.
0: Right. So when you're, when you're giving them your number, some, some trial lawyers are giving the jury in their damages number on the plaintiff's side, a number that they think is a little higher in case the jury gives a lower number mm-hmm. and, and you don't take that approach.
1: Well, you're giving them your best case scenario. Yeah. And I think that juries are not dumb. Juries understand that generally the number you're asking for is, you know, pretty much everything the case is conceivably worth. They do. I actually did one time, though, have a jury ask if they could give more. But that's really really rare you know so i don't I, I mean you know i stick with what my number we just had to keep you know where my economic loss is seven six and there's a seven one that's not that far apart so i'm not going in there saying get me a different life care plan that shows up 12 7
0: right right well you know this has been a wonderful conversation and we're getting close to the end of our time. It's amazing how fast the time goes by. And one of the things I wanted to ask you at the end, because, you know, my hope is you're going to have less experienced people get to learn from you and these other wonderful trial masters who are a BOTA members. So, uh, you know, what's the best piece of advice that you got as a young trial lawyer that you would give to somebody, or what advice would you give of your own that you didn't get when you were young to somebody who's starting to try cases and want they want to become a good trial lawyer?
1: You know what I would tell people, and I've told everyone who works for me, don't chase the money. Do what's right for your client. Try your case. You know, whether it's a good settlement or not is determined by the case, not by the number. Or how bad you need the money? The question is, is it fair? And if it's not, go try your case.
0: That's good advice. And if you can get a fair settlement, that's okay. If your client says yes. But if you can't get a fair settlement, I agree. Go try that case.
1: Sure. You could get $100,000. On a case, and it might be amazing. You could get twenty thousand on a case, and it might be amazing, right? Or you could get five and a half million on a case, and you sold the client down the road.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: So it's not the number as much as it is the facts coupled with the number that tell you whether you're really a trial lawyer or you're just chasing the money.
0: Right. And, and you should always do what's best for your client.
1: That's right.
0: I That's mean, I think right. our, job, our job as lawyers is to serve our client, not us.
1: And to recognize how much influence you have on that client. Right. If, you know, if you tell a client, this is a wonderful offer and you're not going to have to risk it, and we can get rid of this case now and you won't spend all this money on costs, the odds are they're going to take it. If you tell the client, this is an awful offer, you know, your case is just worth more than this. They're just betting that you'll see the figures and want your funds. Now their response is going to be different.
0: Yeah. They'll be different. Yeah. But you've also you've also before you got to this point, you've also had a very frank discussion with your client that trials have risks, you can put on the best case possible, and you could still lose or get a result that you think is unfairly low, right?
1: Oh, I always talk. About that. I say, if I tell you, you've got a 90% chance of winning, I'm telling you, you've got one of the best cases I ever had in my career. yep you know because they don't come with a letter that said i did it
0: no they don't and they're going to fight you every step of the way
1: they don't so you can lose you can get a lot less than what you should get you can spend as much as you're gained in the trial right so no you, you tell them about the risk of loss but you also have an obligation to tell them yeah. objectively right What you believe the value of. okay that's what they're paying for the money. they're exactly. not paying you to take a neutral position on a settlement offer
0: well Cindy you've been you've been serving your clients all we throughout
1: don't need, We do not need the years.
0: <laughs> yeah. You've been serving our clients throughout your career and you continue to do it. And um, I think our listeners are going to find this information so helpful. So thank you for being a guest and thanks for sharing your experience and letting people learn from you. It's been really wonderful to have this conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.